point of view. You're lying in bed in the darkness. It's so quiet the only sound is the ringing in your ears. Suddenly, you hear a loud noise beside you. You jump and quickly reach for your phone. You've received a message from a gremlin. The hair on your arms stands up as you read their message containing a case suggestion. On today's episode, Laura and I will be covering two cases suggested by our gremlins. This is Grim. Hello, welcome to Grimm. We're your hosts, Marina <laughs> and Laura. <laughs> You're stuck with Laura and I again this week, so I don't know about Laura, but my case is very much solved. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't cover the true mysteries without our Grimm detective. Exactly. Mine is also solved yeah. for that exact reason. And they make me mad, so I yep. just choose to avoid them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Colby's got them. Before we start, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to our newest Patreons. Woo! First, we have Jasmine K. Woo! Thanks, we love you. We love you. And second, we have Alan W. Woo! Woo, Alan! Thank you guys so much for signing up for our Patreon. If you want to support us, if you want some cool bonus episodes, want to help us set up a merch store, which we kind of did but haven't fully rolled out, and uh, just want us to deliver the crispest audio to your ear holes, uh, you can check us out at patreon.com and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. And as I love to remind everybody, if you do the $5 a month tier, you can join our Discord server, which Alan did, and it's super fun, and we talk a lot, and... And uh, it's we. I, I'll just keep saying it's fun. We do. You'll we have talk, to know what that is. <laughs> yeah, we talk about um, the cases that we cover. We talk about cases we haven't covered, and we also send pictures of our pets and memes. So, <laughs> yes. like, I don't know what else you'd want in a in a group chat. <laughs> what else could you ask for? Exactly. <laughs> So my listener suggestion comes from Jennifer P. So thank you for the grim suggestion. I'm not. I'm not. I'm holding my thank you until I hear this case. <laughs> <laughs> you won't thank her. No. Today, I'm going to tell you about the Griswold home invasion. It's a heartbreaking story that stems from a terrible decision made by someone who was in the throes of drug addiction. Oh, no. For this week's episode, I read a ton of articles from local news sources like the Hartford Current and the Norwich Bulletin, and I also got a ton of my information from the arrest warrant of one of the people involved. So 21-year-old Matthew Lindquist had been struggling with substance use for years. In October 2017, around Halloween, he was admitted to a rehab facility in Hartford to help with his addiction to opioids and heroin. Whatever success he had in rehab in October was short-lived, as he continued to struggle with his addiction and was looking for drugs that fateful night in December 2017. This is definitely going to be tragic all around because... So tragic. It's just addiction is so awful. Ruins lives. Mm -hmm. And in this case, multiple lives. Prior to the night of the crime, Matthew met Sergio Correa, a man from Hartford who had been released from prison less than a year earlier after serving 10 years behind bars. Sergio was not a good dude. He was a drug dealer and had a criminal history that included convictions for multiple counts of assault, multiple counts of conspiracy to commit robbery one, criminal use of a weapon, larceny one, and arson two. 
In two of his arrests, Sergio actually shot his victims, and he had been sentenced to 20 years suspended after 10 in 2011 for crimes he had committed in 2008 when he was only 16 years old. Oh, geez. So a life of of crime. Yes. Mm. He was discharged to parole in January 2017 and was placed on probation in September 2017 and was on probation at the time of the home invasion. Sergio was that person for Matthew that Laura fears most in her life. Oh, no. Someone that crosses your path and ruins everything. (sighs) Matthew needed drugs but didn't have any money. Sergio had drugs and needed guns. With a desperate need to fuel his drug addiction, Matthew worked with Sergio to develop a plot in which Matthew would trade his parents' guns for drugs and cash from Sergio. Matthew was living with his parents, Ken and Janet Lindquist, in a quiet neighborhood in Griswold, Connecticut, at 70 Kenwood Estates, where the family had lived since 1997. Matthew's parents had a gun safe in the basement in which they kept firearms and ammunition, including a 30 6 caliber hunting rifle. On December 19th, 2017, Sergio and Matthew exchanged numerous texts and phone calls to set their plan in motion. I'm glad we can't track any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go I'm going to go through all of them because it gives you sort of the vibe and the dynamic for the hours yeah. leading up to the crime, but as you have pointed out, the existence of mm-hmm. this record just goes to show you these were not criminal masterminds no, by no. any stretch of the imagination. But I mean, what do we know? Yeah. We don't know anything. Right. No, no. We've only, we've only covered how many cases where people are caught just by their Google search. Right. (laughs) That damn Google, it'll get you every time. (laughs) Early in the day, Matthew confirmed with Sergio that he still had super fire with him, which was apparently a potent form of heroin. That was Matthew's priority, ensuring that Sergio had the drugs and did not forget the drugs. Matthew told Sergio that his dad usually went to sleep after dinner around 6 to 7, so around Laura's bedtime. (laughs) But Matthew wanted to meet up with Sergio earlier and planned to meet with him around 4. Matthew sounded a little concerned in his text, indicating that his parents' safe was bolted to the floor. Matthew asked if Sergio would be able to pick the lock, and Sergio asked for a picture of the safe so that he could look up the lock specs, which Matthew sent. That's actually pretty smart. Pretty smart, but I just would bet money on that this guy could not crack a safe, even if he no. did look up the lock specs. That's true. And I was wondering in the beginning how they expected to be able to get the guns out of the safe. So it seems like they originally thought they were going to just carry the whole safe out of there. Yeah. But I don't know why they wouldn't just have planned better and stolen the key. Right. Yeah. But again. Well, we've answered our own question. Yeah. There. Not not the smartest criminals. The two agreed that Sergio would give Matthew the drugs and cash when Matthew showed him the safe, which Matthew said contained at least two guns. About two hours later, anxious to get started, Matthew texted Sergio and asked if the two should meet in Griswold. I think the original plan may have been for Matthew to drive to Hartford and they would all ride back to Griswold, which Matthew said didn't really make much sense. And he also didn't want to be in the car with Sergio with stolen items for that long following the crime. Matthew told Sergio to meet him at the Lisbon Walmart. But Sergio told Matthew there were too many cameras and that he just wanted to pay Matthew and leave. So, so, so Matthew just, there was no, there were no home invasion plans. It was simply that they were going to pick the lock on the gun safe, get the guns to Sergio and Matthew was going to get the drugs. Is that was the plan originally? They were going to fake a home invasion. They were going to fake a robbery. Okay. Got it. Yeah. You probably told me that when I was staring at you listening. 
I didn't. I haven't gotten to okay, that part good. yet. Because <laughs> sometimes I do that. I just, I'm very intent on the story and I miss one very important detail. I will fill in the blanks. Yeah, but it's, yes, it's, it was a fake robbery. It's usually ages or uh, years that get that I'm stuck on, but I'm with you on this I one. I do the same. I do yeah. the same thing. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yep. So Matthew told Sergio he could just pull up the street near his house, give him the money, and Matthew would show him where the safe was. Matthew provided his address and again wanted to confirm that Sergio had the drugs. Sergio confirmed with Matthew that they would be going through the basement, and Matthew confirmed that Sergio was on his way. But Sergio said he was taking the back roads, so taking his time. Then Matthew sent several unanswered texts. How long does your GPS say? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Five missed calls to Sergio's phone. And reading these, I can just feel the pit that Matthew must have had in his stomach. Scared they weren't coming. Scared they were coming. Mm-hmm. Wanting the drugs. Not wanting to proceed with this plan. Like knowing that oh, it was yeah. a bad, like something bad was happening. Absolutely. Sergio texted back almost an hour and a half later and said he just had to get gas. I would have lost my mind. Yeah. Which I'm also the person that always shows up early. Yep. If, if I'm not early, I'm late. So I'd be <laughs> yeah. like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Matthew said it was a pretty fucked up thing, making him sit there waiting for nothing. Sergio assured Matthew that he was on his way and said he'd throw in extra drugs for the wait. Matthew said the whole trip should have only taken an hour tops. Now, we all have this friend, the friend that says they're on their way to a location 20 minutes away and 30 minutes later, they're like, oh, sorry, I actually just left. (laughs) Yep, yep. That's exactly what Sergio did. He said he left later than he had originally said, so he was actually still 35 minutes away, which was an hour and 45 minutes after he said he was originally headed there. I would not have the patience for this Mm -mm. because he's got to be so anxious and he's just waiting hours longer than he actually needs to. With no response. Right. That's the part that would kill me. Yeah. Not getting a text back. Sergio finally arrived near the house around 1230 a.m. and let Matthew know he was there. Matthew texted back about 10 minutes later and said, it's been 12 minutes, dude. What the fuck? Dude, this isn't cool. At 1246, Sergio texted Matthew, you made me come here for nothing. Five seconds later, there was a missed call on Sergio's phone from Matthew, and that's where the texts and calls ended. So Matthew didn't initially didn't respond to Sergio's texts when he when Sergio arrived. Um, I think he did. And then they were I think they couldn't find each other. Oh, because he said that Sergio texted Matt and said, I'm here. Right. And then he was like, it's been 12 minutes. Dude. Who said who said it's been 12 minutes? Matthew. Oh, Sergio's adopted sister, Ruth Correa, was actually the one that was driving the car. And she had said that they were like driving around this neighborhood. And I think she thought they were lost at first. So I mm. think that 12 minute gap was them trying to find each other. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's why Sergio said, you made me come here for nothing. Like they couldn't find him. He couldn't like, they just couldn't find each other. Yeah. They did ultimately find each other. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Sergio had asked his sister if she wanted to go that night. He explained that the trip was for him to get guns in exchange for the drugs. Uh, Ruth and Sergio drove around the neighborhood until they saw Matthew in the street. They picked him up and Matthew's initial question was about the drugs. And Sergio told him that he wasn't going to get the drugs until Sergio got what he wanted. Matthew and Sergio went over the plans for the staged robbery. Matthew confirmed the basement door was already unlocked, and the plan was for Sergio to tie up Matthew so that it looked like a robbery, and then Matthew would blame the robbery on two black guys. And uh, Matthew's parents were home at this time, uh, presumably sleeping upstairs somewhere. Yes. 
Once they had the plan set, Matthew showed Ruth and Sergio his parents' house, and then they all parked the car down the street near a wooded area. When they all got out of the car, Ruth said Matthew got fidgety and panicked, possibly changing his mind about the whole ordeal. He took off running into the woods. Sergio ran after him and caught him in the back of the head with a machete that he had in his car. What? Yeah, it escalates quickly. Yeah. I... Okay. Apparently, he had this machete in his car, I think, in the pit of doom. Yeah, well, fair. I mean, that's where I keep where my machete. I, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, that but, and my cell phone. But yeah. What? Yep. So Sergio chased after him, got him in the back of the head with a machete, and Matthew fell down. Sergio asked Matthew why he ran and said he was supposed to be his boy. Sergio then told Matthew that he was going to tie him up and duct tape his mouth because he didn't want him to scream. So Matthew understandably freaked out Uh and started screaming and yelling. So Sergio started stabbing him with the knife. Sergio then handed Ruth the knife and told her to, quote, get him. Ruth said Sergio guided her hand towards his body and made her stab Matthew at least 10 times. The two both continued to stab Matthew from his head down to his legs. When Matthew asked them why they were killing him, the two said they were going to call an ambulance, but they didn't. That just breaks my heart because again, I, I fully, fully believe and know that addiction is a disease. So my heart already breaks for Matthew right. it being caught in what he's caught in. And then he clearly did this out of desperation. It doesn't right. make it okay, but it's out of desperation. But for that to be what I, well, I assume is his end, but I guess I will I listen know. is just so tragic. And then I, I don't even want to know the rest of what it, happens. It just breaks my, it, oh, it gets way worse, awful. but it's, it's absolutely devastating. Yeah. Matthew was stabbed a total of 67 times, his body just 50 feet from the road in the trees, and he did not survive. So the plan went to hell in a handbasket very quickly. I'll say. But Sergio wanted what he came for. The siblings left Matthew's dead body in the woods and headed to the Lindquist home, Ruth armed with a golf club and Sergio armed with a bat. The pair entered through the basement and found the gun safe, which, as they already knew, was bolted to the ground. The two went upstairs where Ken Lindquist was sleeping on the couch in front of the TV, which gives me Cheshire vibes. I was and I just going to say that. hate it. Yeah. I hate it. Yep. Ken either woke up or the pair woke him up. I saw it both ways, but either way, he told them to get out. Sergio began fighting Ken and hitting him repeatedly with the bat, demanding the keys to the gun safe. Ken told Sergio he wasn't getting shit. The family dog, a four-year-old golden retriever named Skylar, went after Ruth, and she hit the dog so hard with the golf club that it broke, and the dog ran away whining. Oh, Yeah. I, I want to go home. I'm so sorry. This is so bad. It, this is so bad because those poor parents who were probably already having a really hard time with their poor son. I know they knew he was... They were right. just trying to help him. Oh. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know I should care and I do care a lot about humans, but there's I something the about get you. It, really, really awful. I also have golden retrievers, so that may contribute to that. And there are only four. My dog is four. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, please. Well, I continue. So before we started this episode, I told Laura that this was a really, um, terrible episode and she was like, um, last week's episode was really terrible, yeah. but this is terrible on a whole nother level. Yeah. So with the men yelling and the dog barking, Janet Lindquist woke up and came out to see what was going on. Ruth said that she grabbed her by the hand and led her to another room, telling her she didn't need to see what was going on. 
According to Ruth, she told Janet that she didn't want to hurt her and that they just needed the keys to the safe so that they could go. Janet asked where her son was and why this was happening. Ruth told Janet that this was all happening because of him and that he set it up. And I am just so crushed for this mother hearing that in that situation. By the fact that we are hearing this story has clearly come out as as fact, but I wish I just wish it hadn't. I know. You know, I wish it had just seemed like he had run into these people and they just never knew. Yeah, why that he you, was involved or that you didn't know the horrific exactly. details exactly. of what happened. In the other room, Sergio beat Ken to death with the baseball bat, fracturing his skull into more than 30 pieces oh and God. causing traumatic brain injuries. Ruth noticed that it got quiet. Sergio, who had managed to get the keys to the safe following Ken's death, went and got a gun that he brought to the bedroom. Sergio pointed the gun at Janet and terrorized her with it, even sexually taunting her at one point. He forced Janet to take off her underwear and was making disparaging sexual comments to her. Come on. I mean, just a piece of shit on the... Really? Yeah. Like, I'm still stuck. Like, I know they needed the key to get in, but... You can't figure it out or do any... You had to attack people. I Just take what you want and figure out a way to get into the safe and then leave. I know. I know. Ugh. Ruth went around the house collecting more items. According to Ruth, Sergio told her to, quote, take care of Janet, as in kill her. But Ruth says she refused. Now, this is Ruth's version of events. Sergio may have told his girlfriend after the fact that Ruth had been the one to, quote, deal with Janet. But in any event, Ruth says Sergio then forced Janet onto her knees and shoved her face into the bed before attacking her with the bat. The injuries to her head could have been fatal, but she survived. Continuing to make noise, Sergio proceeded to get a shoelace and strangled Janet with it with his foot in her back, stopping when she fell silent. Ruth and Sergio proceeded to start packing up Matthew's car with the guns, jewelry, items from the home, and the family's Christmas presents. While in the house, Ruth said she could smell feces, and Sergio said, and I'm paraphrasing, this guy really shit himself. Just for a moment of levity, uh, because this is so grim. It's really, really fucking awful. So grim. One article I read said that the pair stole bags of Christmas items, and when I first read that, I forgot that it was December and was thinking that she was talking about stealing like garland and tinsel oh, from like storage. Decorations. Yeah, but yeah. no, instead they stole all the family's Christmas presents. Like which, a murderous Grinch. Yes. Yeah. Which sucks ass Awful. as well, but um, I just thought that was a slightly funny anecdote yeah. just to break the just to break the tension. Yep. Yeah. This is this one is really hitting me in the gut. This, this one, one is really. I think home invasions, I, I, let me be clear, every single case we cover is right. awful because no one deserves to die. But home invasions, there's something so offensive about right. someone coming into your home. Your sense of security. It, it's just in it, it just the, the helplessness that people must feel when they're unprotected and attacked is just, it, it really disturbs me. It's also so obviously we talked about Cheshire too. It's the brutality yes. of these cases. Yes. For whatever reason, these people don't go in and just, you know, put a Shoot put a bullet someone. in their head right. while they're yeah. sleeping and then steal their stuff. Like it is hours yeah. of this going yeah. on. And it's just I think it's putting yourself in that mindset yes. even like 
just for a moment mm-hmm. that just like I've had chills the whole time I've been talking yeah. about this episode. Like and it's I, just terrible. I know we joke about the, Oh, the dogs hit us harder. And, and I don't mean that I don't care about right, the right. humans who lost lives here. I know. But I think that there's something because I have dogs, yeah. there's something that is exactly that I put myself, I can picture this exact right. scenario and it just makes it that much more real. And of course I'm picturing my four year old golden retriever. So that's not, I can't stay too long on that topic. Yeah. Um, so I think that's exactly it is it's you can it could be any one of us yeah and that is why this is my worst fear yeah and we're two pages in and you're still stuck on the dog so <laughs> I, I know I know it was just it's just I, it's, it's so just, sad it's so sad it the whole thing is so sad all it's, of it yeah it's really and infuriating I told you it was a really shitty case so thanks yeah. a lot thanks a lot Jennifer yeah Jennifer. It. <laughs> just kidding love you <laughs> On the last trip into the house for items, Ruth went to the bedroom and saw Sergio was again choking Janet. Janet had still been alive, and Sergio caught her reaching for a phone. Sergio grabbed the bat again and hit Janet in the back of the head about four to five times. Once Ruth and Sergio had everything they wanted, they went to the basement, found whatever strong-smelling flammable liquids they could, and proceeded to pour the liquid all over the basement and up the stairs. Sergio then lit the liquid with a lighter, and they walked out. Janet was still alive when the fire was lit. She died from a combination of blunt force trauma, smoke inhalation, and burns. And Skylar also died in the fire. I presume that was the dog. That was the dog. This, aside from maybe Cheshire, this one may be one of the worst. It's unbelievably brutal. Holy shit. The Linquist had been terrorized for about four hours from 1245 a.m. when they first met up with Matthew until around 5 a.m is how long the Correas were in the house. Sergio drove Matthew's car back to his aglant, and Ruth got out and into the driver's seat of her brother's car. Ruth followed her brother out of the neighborhood, and they drove about a half hour away and parked near an abandoned building. They put all the property from Matthew's car into Sergio's car. They then drove five minutes further before stopping again. Sergio told Ruth to stay parked, left in Matthew's car, and then returned about five minutes without the other car. Ruth and Sergio then went home to Hartford and arrived around 7 a.m. So that is what happened. Let's talk about the police investigation and the trial for a minute. Do you have, you seem. I'm really, I am really upset by this case. It is, it, it is exactly as you said, the brutality of it, the senselessness of it, the tragedy again of how it even started is awful. And it's just the complete disregard for human or any life is like I said, it's just offensive. It it's, just steal what you need to steal and leave people. You're going to get caught. I certainly hope because, again, we're talking about this case. Right. You're going to get caught. You're way better off getting caught for burglary and theft than murder. So just leave everybody alone. But it's like it's obvious that they enjoyed it because he I was know. taunting her. And I it know. went on for four hours. That's insane. I I, I can't fathom. I just no. can't fathom no. it. At 5.12 a.m. on December 20th, 2017, neighbors called 911 to report a fire at the Lindquist home. About 40 minutes later, at 5.56, Glastonbury police responded to a car fire at the Glastonbury Luxury Apartments, and the vehicle engulfed in flames was Matthew Lindquist's 2003 Saturn Ion. According to Google Maps, it's a 45-minute drive from the home in Griswold to the apartments in Glastonbury. That's from the police arrest warrant. That's not my own research. MapQuest says it's two hours by horse and buggy. So I just wanted to get that in there. 
thank you because I really needed to laugh. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. Police obtained a search warrant for the Lindquist's home and found Janet and Ken's remains inside, along with the empty gun safe, but no sign of Matthew. The police began interviewing neighbors and family members. They learned that Matthew had been having issues with substance use, and police set out to try to find him using the GPS from his cell phone, which they found was located in Hartford around 1630 to 1640 Main Street near the Sands apartment complex. The GPS from Janet and Ken's phones also showed up in the same area. Oh, my God. Yeah. The FBI was involved from the very beginning to help with the cellular analysis of Matthew's phone. The FBI and police combed through Matthew's cell phone records, and by December 22nd, 2017, so two days later, they found that he had placed a call at 12.46 a.m. before the house fire to a number that was linked to an email and a matching Instagram account, which belonged to Sergio Correa who was currently on probation. Mm -hmm. Shockingly, Sergio had an apartment in Hartford approximately 100 feet from where Matthew's phone was pinging. Mm -hmm. Probation officers, along with the Hartford Police Department, paid Sergio a visit and conducted a search of his bedroom, but they came up with nothing. They told Sergio that he was not under arrest, but that they wanted to talk to him about an investigation. Sergio agreed to go with police, and he waived his right to an attorney during his police interview. Again, what, what do we tell you? Brilliant. What do we tell you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Police showed him a picture of Matthew and asked if Sergio knew where he was. Sergio paused when he saw the photo and said he wasn't involved with, quote, his business. During the interview, Sergio said, whatever that man done did, that's his bullshit. The police told Sergio they knew he'd been in contact with Matthew since the arson. And then Sergio said he wanted a lawyer. Sergio pulled out his iPhone to call a lawyer. The police saw the phone and were like, bonjour. <laughs> they confirmed that that was the only phone that he had, and they seized it as evidence. Beautiful. While Sergio was being interviewed, probation officers and the Hartford Police Department conducted a search of Sergio's car, and they found a red gas can, multiple knives, wound cleanser spray, a sledgehammer, a pry bar, and an HP computer monitor, among other items. The vehicle was seized to prevent the destruction of potential evidence, given what the police knew at that time. Matthew's brother, Eric, was later able to ID the HP monitor and pry bar as items that belonged to his father. Oh, my God. Matthew had a brother? He did. And a, a sister. Oh, where did you didn't tell me this? Did they you? didn't live in the house. OK. They oh. weren't there. Oh, my. You know, so they lost me, their whole family. Part of me was hoping that thinking hoping is probably not the right word, but thinking maybe that. Yeah, because maybe that family could at least find peace. No, because they have all passed but that is so horrendous because were they older like at college or grown up or they know? were older than him yeah, yeah because there's a picture um there's a picture of eric with his parents and he's in either a high school or a college graduation mm -hmm. and uh, matthew looks m much younger okay, maybe so like 15 so okay. yeah like moved out or or at school or whatever yeah. but that i that is not a call i would want no holy moly. no wow so, so you just lose your whole family right. in one night right and, and your house, because it's burnt down, or right. at least burnt. Right. Awful. I know. God. So once a search and seizure warrant was obtained, the police conducted a more thorough search of the vehicle, and in addition to the items found in the car, they also noticed that something was not quite right. Screws and bolts were missing or replaced, and the interior trim on the seats did not match the rest of the car. They also noticed that there were power seat wires with no power seat controls, and there was yellow writing under the driver's seat that was traced back to a junkyard in New Hampshire. 
It turns out that in order to conceal evidence, Sergio replaced the inside parts of his gallant with other stolen car pieces. <laughs> okay. Not the dumbest idea we've heard thus far. Uh, no, I guess. But it's not going to, it's not working no, for you. No, But not the dumbest, not the yeah. dumbest we've heard. Yeah. On January 5th, 2018, detectives met with and interviewed an employee of the Sands apartment complex where Ruth lived. And this apartment complex is like a hundred feet from where Sergio is living. The man said that on either December 24th or December 30th, he was approached by a woman named Ruth. He said her brother known as Giovanni or Gio lives in the complex behind the apartments. I think Sergio Gio, I think he went with like, I get maybe an alias. Hmm. The man explained that Ruth essentially word vomited to him that night talking about the Griswold home invasion. She told him that her and Sergio killed Matthew, took his keys and went to his house for valuables. Once in the house, they went after the father and then the mother who put up a big fight. Ruth said they stabbed them both and then burnt the house before they took Matthew's car. Now, this is like a stranger she's talking to. Crazy. Ruth said that after everything happened, there was evidence in the car. So the only option was to burn it. Ruth told him that when she got in the car with the knife, she was covered in blood. And her brother said, man, I didn't know you lived this life. And Ruth told him, buddy, for the 10 years you've been locked up, I've been doing stuff you don't even know about. The witness said he has seen Matthew at the same Hartford apartment complex where Ruth lived at least once before the killings. So police obviously knew that they were on the right track Mm -hmm. with the Correa siblings at this point. On May 5th, 2018, over four months after the home invasion, Matthew's body was recovered. Oh, my God. His body was found by a man walking his dogs, and the remains were ID'd by dental records. Wow. You know what's crazy is they actually brought dogs to that area to look for his body or to look for any trace of him, and they came up with nothing. Weird. That is weird. I don't know if it was like the elements. Maybe it was like snowy. Maybe it was cold and preserved the body or something. I I don't, I don't know, know, but I thought that was very bizarre that if he was that close yeah. to the property that they wouldn't wow. they wouldn't find him sooner. But his cause of death was multiple stab wounds to the head, torso, and extremities. Four days later, police executed a search and seizure warrant on Ruth's apartment. The following day, they obtained a DNA sample from her, and it was on that day that Ruth agreed to speak with the police, and she sang like a canary. Which is not surprising considering she also told a stranger all of the details. But mm. I was just realizing if they hadn't found Matthew's body until May, that almost really put the nail in the coffin for Ruth and Sergio because it it kind of proved that her story that she was telling a stranger was not a story. It was the truth that they really had. Because otherwise they might have been wondering, where's Matthew? Maybe he did all right, this. Right. They may have thought he had been involved in some exactly. way. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. So Ruth told the police all about the murders and her brother's involvement. She explained that they disposed of all the property from the house that night and that Sergio actually came over to check to make sure that all of it was gone. Ruth told police that she never saw the guns from the home after that night. She mentioned that Sergio had been incredibly paranoid and that prior to her brother's arrest on unrelated charges, like I said, upstanding gentleman, Mm -hmm. Sergio had asked a family member for the okay to kill Ruth. What? So I think Ruth's confession was intended to protect her from her brother and also to get out of the situation with as little jail time as possible. Yeah. On May 12th, 2018, Ruth was officially arrested for her involvement in the Linquist murders. Sergio wasn't arrested and charged until June 4th, 2018. 
There was no real rush since he was already in prison on three violation of probation charges from the Hartford Police Department. And when police had arrived to serve those warrants, he was found in possession of drugs and additional charges were filed. So Ruth agreed to testify against her brother in exchange for a plea deal. On May 27, 2021, she pleaded guilty to three counts of felony murder, and in return, the state suggested a 40-year prison sentence rather than the 100-plus sentence she faced if convicted with the murders at trial. It was considered a get-out-of-jail-alive opportunity mm -hmm. since she could be released by the time she turned 67, if not earlier. At Sergio's trial, as agreed, Ruth testified as the star witness. She was apparently calm, cool, and collected while on the stand talking about the horrific details of the murders. She didn't break down until she talked about the prospect of being separated from her own two children. And that infuriates yep. me. Yep. Absolutely no empathy for others in the world. It's all about number one. And she obviously didn't even for one minute put herself in the no. situation of the people that whose lives she was ruining Except, that night. Like I said, complete disregard for human life. It just, it makes me so mad. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, you're so sad that you're going to be in jail away from your babies. Well, Who are still alive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you're still alive. Yep. Oh man. So mad. On December 14th, 2021, almost four years after the murders, Sergio was convicted of 13 of the 14 crimes with which he was charged, including two counts of felony murder for murdering Janet and Ken during the commission of a crime, three counts of murder, and one count of murder with special circumstances for committing two or more murders during the mm. same crime, two counts of second-degree arson, two counts of first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, and home invasion. The only charge that Sergio was found not guilty of was the felony murder charge related to Matthew because the state presented evidence that Sergio and Matthew made a deal to trade his parents' guns in exchange for heroin and cash. So it wasn't really a robbery as it related to oh. Matthew. Okay, that makes sense. On May 3rd, 2022, Ruth and Sergio were both sentenced. There were victim impact statements read from Janet and Ken's daughter Ooh. and son mm. explaining the devastation this caused to their lives. Eric said, Your Honor, there's no sentence you can issue in accordance with existing law that is harsh enough to allow me or many of the friends and family in court with me to receive justice for the heinous acts of this man. He said that his parents had an entire life ahead of them, arguably the best part of their life together that was senselessly taken from them at the hands of evil, soulless creatures. Ruth was sentenced to 40 years, and at her sentencing, she said, there's nothing I can say that will take away the hurt, the pain, and as sorry as I am, words don't matter. At Sergio's sentencing, he said that he wanted to represent himself because he wanted to file motions that his lawyers refused to. He said, <sighs> it's my life. I'm the one who has to do the time for a crime I didn't commit. Oh, please. Sergio was sentenced to life in prison plus an additional 105 years yes. by Judge Hunchu Kwok. Good. Judge Kwok said he was at a loss for words on the brutality and vicious acts of violence. Speaking to the linguists, he said, I don't know if this will bring you closure, but I hope it brings finality to your suffering. Mm. Sergio appealed and his brief is currently due to the Supreme Court by April 17th, 2023. I made a flicking motion like, get out of here, you little bug. I don't, yeah. I'm just, it's it, it just offensive. I can't I find another word. I know. So that is the wow. Griswold home invasion. And that one was incredibly grim. Incredibly wow. grim. That was even more depressing to read out loud than it was when I was preparing my notes. And ah. I basically had chills the entire episode. Me too. And I am speechless. 
I am speechless. That was awful. Yeah, that one sucked. The home invasions really suck. Well, we'll move on to a lighthearted murder. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) Oh, man, I needed that moment of levity. Me, too. uh, Me, too. And it is not lighthearted, but it is not quite as as brutal. It's heavy in here. All right. So I I have to get my head in my own case. I'm so overwhelmed by yours that um, I have to remember. But I'll start by saying... (laughs) I apologize profusely to the gremlin that suggested this case. Uh, We did not write your name down when we wrote down the suggestion and added it to the list. Uh, We have since started doing that. But if if it was you, let us know on our Instagram, which of course is at Grim Crime Podcast or Facebook, Grim A True Crime Podcast. I would love to know. And I am sorry, but thank you very much for the suggestion. I too combed the messages. And I also wonder whether it was somebody that mentioned it to us in person because that would not be recorded. Okay. Okay, that would make me feel better. I'd still like to know. Yeah, thank so you. let us know. Or you can yeah. shoot us an email or text us or yeah. send us a carrier pigeon, yeah. whatever. Smoke signal. It's yeah. all fine. We respond to all of those things. <laughs> we really do, though. We do. Okay, I'm, I'm really, I'm still like, my heart is racing from the last I'm case. Okay. Way to go, Jennifer. You ruined yeah. Laura. You broke her. Oof. You broke Laura. Yeah. Man. So the victim of my case today is Mackenzie Cowell. And of oh. course, I'd like to begin by telling you about her. Mackenzie Nicole Cowell was born on April 1st, 1992, to parents Reed and Wendy, joining her older brother, Colby, born five years earlier. The family lived in Wenatchee, Washington. Wenatchee is right smack dab in the middle of Washington state and is known as the Apple capital of the world. I do believe we talked about this in a previous episode because we were talking about where people get apples. And I remember Colby bringing up Washington. Oh, Washington apples. Mm-hmm. And we said it was a New England thing too, though, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had this conversation. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to Grimm. Guys, if you know what episode <laughs> that was, let us know. because I'm sure you guys remember. do. We don't remember. Uh, so anyway, the city, which lies in a valley in the foothills of the Cascade Range, is covered with apple orchards, as you might imagine. And obviously, I scoured it on Google Maps. And it really is spectacular. It's just acres and acres of orchards. About 35,000 people live in the 12 square miles spread to the west of the Columbia River. Mackenzie's parents later divorced, with Reed remarrying to a woman named Sandy Francis and Wendy dating a man named Joey Fisher. But that didn't stop Mackenzie from excelling. By 2010, she was a successful senior in high school, including dancing with the high school dance team named the Appleettes. Oh my gosh, which I, I loved. love that. And also taking cosmetology classes at the Academy of Hair Design in town. Okay. This was her real passion. She loved modeling, fashion, makeup, all of that. But you know, I'm not here to tell you about an auspicious young woman who went on to live a long, happy life. No, she lit up a room, didn't she? She was a, quote, bright, happy girl. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was Tuesday, February 9th, 2010. Mackenzie, less than two months shy of her 18th birthday and braces still sparkling on her teeth, had finished her high school classes for the day and was in the midst of her afternoon classes at the Academy of Hair Design. Around three o'clock, she asked a classmate if she needed to sign out from the school if she'd only be gone 15 minutes. Satisfied she wasn't breaking any rules, Mackenzie walked through the parking lot to her car and got in. She sent a quick text, hey, to her boyfriend, and then drove off. This is the last time anyone heard from her. No. Mackenzie and her father, Reed, were planning to have a father-daughter dinner date at home that night. That's so sweet and wholesome. It is. She should have been out of cosmetology school by 5, so when she wasn't yet home at 5.40, Reed called her cell phone. It went straight to voicemail. 
I don't like that. He was initially confused and a bit disappointed, but when she didn't show up for her 8 p.m. curfew, he became concerned. Around 10 o'clock that night, 40 miles away in the remote town Pitcher Canyon, a resident reported an abandoned 1997 Pontiac Grand Prix in front of their home. After looking up the owner, police contacted none other than Reed Cowell. He said, yeah, he was missing the car, but he was also missing his daughter, who should have been inside it. Oh my gosh. The car was found locked, and Mackenzie's purse and some clothes were in the car. But her debit card was missing, as was her cell phone, which was still off. That's rare. I feel like in most cases, they're like, the cell phone was still there, and Mm -hmm. that's even sketchier. Yep, and it was off, which meant they can't find it. Right. Police observed a single set of footprints outside the car, leading back toward Wenatchee, the town. Was the car broken down? Nope. No, okay. For an agonizing four days, Mackenzie's family, friends, and the entire community searched for any trace of her. Then, on Saturday, February 13th, Reed got the call no father ever wants to answer. The voice on the other line said, Sir, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but we found a body. Which just gives me chills. Because you know you're hoping. Oh, this is a much more lighthearted case. Thank you. (laughs) you. I know. I know. That's why I felt bad kind of saying that. I I just literally needed to laugh to get myself out of the Griswold case. Um, By the way, listeners, this is an episode for you, by you. So you have no one but yourselves to thank (laughs) for this grim episode. This is on you. (laughs) You did this. What have you done? (laughs) Okay. Mackenzie was discovered lying on the banks of the Columbia River in an area called Crescent Bar, a resort community in the nearby town of Quincy. She was fully clothed, with her feet in the shallow, freezing water, just 50 yards from an empty house that was up for sale. She had a deep laceration in her neck, had been struck in the head, strangled, and stabbed to death. Oh my gosh. It also appeared that the murderer had attempted to dismember her. Oh my gosh. The knife was still embedded in her shoulder. (gasps) Police immediately went to work. An obvious suspect was her boyfriend, Joaquin Villasano. When they brought him in for questioning, he failed a polygraph repeatedly. The question he kept failing was, do you know who killed Mackenzie? But Joaquin had an airtight alibi. Do you want to know what it is? Yes. Me too, but I couldn't find it. Oh, no. (laughs) Why would you do that? (laughs) Because I need you to feel my pain. This is the drawback to a shorter case. I could not find it. But he was he was exonerated. You didn't make any phone calls? Like, I, I tried, but West Coast, you know. Do better. Um, <laughs> with Joaquin off the table, investigators next looked into Mackenzie's mom's boyfriend, Joey. Mackenzie and Joey did not have a good relationship. And in fact, just the day before she disappeared, they'd gotten into a huge fight. Mackenzie told her mom, it's him or me. Ooh. But after chasing this lead, police could find no physical linkage and Joey too was exonerated. So they just couldn't, so they cleared him, fully yeah, cleared him? Fully cleared both of them. Huh. Yep. I really wish I knew why, but I couldn't find it. But you did find that the boyfriend had an airtight alibi. The the boyfriend had an airtight alibi. That is what they said. Yeah. And and Joey, they just couldn't link him. So they, they said no him? physical linkage is what the explanation was. Okay. All right. Yep. But this is solved? It is solved. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Carry on. Well, we'll see. Okay. It is solved, but we'll hear opinions. Okay. Two months later, a bombshell tip came in. A woman named Liz Reed told police she knew who killed Mackenzie, and she had video proof. What? Mm-hmm. That was two months later? Mm-hmm. What were you waiting for, lady? 
Well, before we get into that, let me tell you just a little bit about Liz. Okay. She struggled with substance abuse with a preference for Oxycontin. She also sold drugs to pay for her own. And I am not passing judgment on anyone's activities, but it's relevant to note that she was an informant to the police. And I'm guessing it was one of those activities that might have landed her in jail and gotten her to agree to that arrangement. Mm -hmm. So when she came to police with this insane statement, obviously they asked for the video, but she didn't have it. She said it was shown to her by two drug dealers she was associated with, Sam Cuevas and Emmanuel Saros. She claimed that they thought Mackenzie was in the drug world and that Mackenzie was an informant. So they had to kill her. That that checks out. Right. That yeah. checks out based on all the information you gave us at the exactly. beginning. She seems like the type that would do that. Modeling, makeup, Drug informant. Dealing. Right. Yeah. Yep. Liz, now the kicker. So I, I, I suspect the police had a similar reaction, but Liz even described the knife that was used to kill Mackenzie, information that had not yet been shared with the public. So the police took this very seriously. Yeah, that's suspicious. Yes. But despite intense investigation, there was no evidence that Sam and Emmanuel were involved or even had any awareness that Mackenzie existed, let alone possessed a video of her murder. Did Liz murder her? <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> think she had anything to do with it because Liz did try to convince police that she was telling the truth by producing a ring that she claimed the men told her to retrieve from where Mackenzie's body was left. But none of Mackenzie's loved ones recognized the ring. And when Liz was confronted with this, she retracted her entire story saying there was no video after all. What the fuck? Exactly my thought. Okay. That, I just thought of that Dane Cook skit where like people want to be really important when the police are investigating something. And they're like, I heard the crash. I was in the kitchen washing a dish. Why aren't you writing this down right now? I heard yes. it. I said, fuck shoes. And I ran outside. <laughs> no, that, I didn't see anything. But like, I heard it. That is how I feel about Liz. And I'm infuriated on their behalf on the police and family's behalf that they wasted time yeah, so, yeah. looking at this because what i don't get is how she described the murder weapon because at first i thought she just said that it was a knife and i'm like all right well i could have probably guessed that it was a knife hmm. as i guess but if she described it that's kind of strange but i don't have enough detail to know how well she described it and then i was thinking well if she's an informant to the police was she maybe spending any time around officers or at the station? Maybe oh, she picked up just the tiniest yeah. bit. Um, or again, maybe she just guessed. I don't know, but very frustrated. Maybe she was really good at Clue. I thought it was actually my first thought. <laughs> She's like, yeah. she died on the shore with a blade, with a knife. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so as the months ticked on, police received an abundance of tips about someone that had not even been on their radar. Callers were concerned about 29-year-old Christopher Scott Wilson. I read conflicting information about exactly what Chris's connection was. In some articles, it said he lived in the apartment below the cosmetology school because his mother owned the building. In others, they say he was a classmate at the school. It may have been both, so we'll go with that. Okay. I'll buy it. Yeah, it works for the story. Chris didn't fit in, to say the least. Wenatchee was a very straight-laced, tight-lipped, white picket fence type of town from what I can gather. Chris worked at a funeral home, had a Hannibal Lecter tattoo, and was active on serial killer forums online. Mm, you don't like to hear about that. No. And while maybe disturbing for the people of Wenatchee, though, those characteristics alone wouldn't have made him a suspect in a murder case. But what did make police look twice were the specific statements from witnesses. Okay. Yeah, because I was just thinking that um, we're pretty weird and we like serial killers. <laughs> yeah. And 
I wouldn't have a Hannibal Lecter tattoo, but like, I bet you somebody Mm -hmm. pretty cool does. But has anyone said that you have quote, an obsession with death, dead bodies and serial killers? Actually, maybe they have. So I won't ask that. Not recently that I'm aware (laughs) of, but yeah, it's possible. Ooh, I'm screwed. All right. Well, this one, I hope you don't relate to another person that called in said Chris had tried to choke a female friend and at another time used a belt to strangle a guest at a hotel he'd worked at a few years ago. I plead the fifth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) This is being recorded. (laughs) So uh, Chris also apparently told a fellow student at the academy that he, quote, liked to cut people up, referring to his job at the funeral home. And last I checked, that's not what you do there. Oh, do they cut them at all when they embalm them? I don't... Mm, I... I don't think... It's it's a concerning statement, to say the least. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But the most chilling thing to me, at least, was he was seen on surveillance tape leaving the academy just over a minute after Mackenzie left the day she disappeared. So following her, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Chris was arrested on Thursday, October 7th, 2010. But again, even with the tips about his fixation on death and killing, it likely wouldn't have been enough to charge him with Mackenzie's murder. Right. The police also had physical evidence. Ooh. Among the calls into the station about Chris, three people reported seeing someone who matched his description walking down the road from where Mackenzie's car was abandoned the afternoon she'd gone missing. Okay. DNA on duct tape found near Mackenzie's body was matched to Chris, and Mackenzie's blood was also on the tape. They got you, fucker. Definitely. And that, again, that alone would have felt pretty good. But this was just enough to get investigators probable cause to search his apartment. They scanned that with luminol. The carpet in one of the bedrooms lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, my gosh. So, of course, they cut a patch out to test it. To no one's surprise, the DNA was a match to Mackenzie. Wow. Like hook, line, and sinker. Exactly. And the question that comes up is why was Mackenzie even in, you know, Chris's apartment if you could argue? And I mean, it was plenty of blood. But if you could make an argument about why she was in there. His family and friends say they they were friends. But there's no digital proof of this. Nothing on her phone or his. No Facebook friends. Nothing like that. And during an interview that Chris did with 48 Hours, he said they didn't even have a relationship. Hmm. So very strange. Another damning piece of evidence, as if we didn't have enough, was a video taken by one of Chris's friends, Tessa Shileman. She videoed while she walked around his apartment as he was preparing to move out, and the two were discussing his security deposit. Chris can be heard asking if she thought the apartment was clean enough. She says, clean enough for what? Considering? Yeah. It's clean enough, considering. And then she zooms in on the carpet where the investigators found the blood. Oh, what the fuck? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So Tessa was also arrested, but ultimately released. Of course, they considered charging her with helping Chris since there were pictures on Chris's computer of Tessa posing as a dead person on the spot where Mackenzie's blood was found. Oh, my God. Also, he's not getting the security deposit back because you lose it for like a nick on the wall. So like dead bodies in the carpet fibers. No. That being said, do you think the landlord's going through with luminol? I don't know. (laughs) You know? I wouldn't put it past no. them. They no. will they will paint over a cockroach, but they do pull out the black lights for <laughs> the security true. deposit inspection. That's so true. That's so true. I don't think you want to do a black light in many men's apartments. Going back to that Family Guy episode where they turn it on and there's like sheep and cows and like yes. raccoons on yes. the bed. <laughs> exactly. No. I now I don't think that Tessa was actually involved at all in the murder. 
but I definitely think she was complicit in knowing, you know, she definitely knew what was happening. I don't think those were all just coincidences. So did Joaquin know him? Did he know Chris? Because why did he, so. why did he fail the polygraph about who killed her? They, if he knew who killed her. I don't know. And they, they interviewed him on 48 hours and he says like, yeah, of course I know now, but it's interesting that the question he failed was, do you know who killed Mackenzie? Like, what is the correct answer to that? Was he saying no when it was a lie? I guess that would have been the fail. But yeah, so I, I think it was just further proof that polygraphs don't really tell that much because he definitely was not involved. There's absolutely no indication to show that he was involved. So I think... I don't know. Was he huh. upset? You know, I know that the, all the um, baselines are supposed to right. address if you're nervous or all that, but that's why it's junk science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did look up, try to look up stats, but the, the only stats are like from the Polygraph Institute of America or whatever it is. It's, They're like, like, it's incredible. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's not what I'm looking for. Anyway, all of this was definitely enough to charge Chris with first degree murder. Grim fact. Chris's lawyer also had Ted Bundy as a client. Wow. Which I thought was very interesting. Wow. Was mm-hmm. it interesting? It was so interesting. Wow. That's why it's a grim fact. Wow. Their case was hinged on corruption. So I think they basically were like, all right, the physical and circumstantial evidence were pretty screwed. So we'll go with corruption of the police. They set him up. They, they said that the police had planted the blood in Chris's apartment. Mm-hmm. I do think this is outrageous. The only interesting point I'll give his lawyer was that Mackenzie's jugular was cut. So you would think that there would be blood everywhere and there, and it wasn't, it was just kind of pooled on the floor. But I I don't know that that's enough proof. Like that does not outweigh all of the other things in my mind. Why? Like we go back to Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. Why would the police frame him and plant blood in his apartment? Right. The simplest solution is that he murdered her Mm -hmm. in his apartment. And they weren't even looking for him until they received all these tips, which again, I know just being different doesn't mean that you murdered someone, but they didn't do all of that. No. Uh, I also will note that Chris was obsessed with Dexter. So it's possible he put some plastic up, didn't do a great job. I don't know. Side note, that's a great show. It is a great show. Yeah. (laughs) I'm guessing many of our gremlins have watched it. Yes, that's a great show. So remember our friend Liz Reed? Yes. She also came back into the picture. Okay. She was, again, the one who claimed to have seen a video of Mackenzie's murder. Yeah. I remember her. She basically said, just kidding. I did see a video and I'll testify to it during Chris's trial. Incredibly credible. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was no payment or other incentive uh, involved there. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, before the trial in April 2011, Chris was given the offer to plead guilty to manslaughter and serve just six and a half years in prison, which he should have immediately said yes to. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. He declined, saying he was innocent and would not plead guilty to something he didn't do. I hate it when they say that because Mm -hmm. you always are like, what if they are actually innocent? Well, and that's why I said this is solved. Well, there's not that much left, so you'll figure it out soon. (laughs) But but is it? So I do want to discuss that at the end. But um, they continued to prepare for trial. Jury selection was in progress. But when they filled out the pretrial questionnaire, nearly all of the the potential jurors, like 85% of them, believed he was guilty. Okay. So it's not looking so good. Yeah. Armed with this information, prosecutors offered a new plea deal, 14 years in prison, but Chris must include in his plea a written statement saying, 
quote, I did recklessly cause the death of Mackenzie Cowell by strangulation and by stabbing her with a knife. Chris indeed pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in a plea deal on May 23, 2012. In his interview with 48 Hours, Chris said he didn't mean it. He just did it to avoid a longer sentence. Mm -hmm. Fair. Yeah. There are Uh, people... I actually had this discussion. If you got offered like five to seven years for a crime you didn't commit, but if you rolled the dice and went to trial and were facing like 50 years and they had... Even if it wasn't, even if it was circumstantial evidence and like, you're just going to be sunk, even if you didn't do it, like we would probably take the plea. Yeah. I really think so because that leaves weight. That leaves literally the rest of my life up to not fate, but right. Too much chance. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, Gremlins, what would you do in that situation? It's a a tough question. It's loaded. Now, just a few months after that, Chris filed a motion to withdraw his guilty plea, saying he hadn't understood how much time he would actually serve in prison. This was denied. Okay, yeah. Chris was sentenced to 14 years in prison, earliest release date being August of this year, 2023. So that is the relatively quick case of uh, Mackenzie Cowell. And so the solved part of it is Christopher Scott Wilson, but I am curious what your thoughts are. Do you think that Chris is guilty? Is it possible that the evidence was tampered with or was he just a scapegoat? I know we've talked about that in other cases. Um, for, for my opinion, without allowing you to give yours, I'll just launch right into mine. <laughs> I, I don't know that I think he didn't do it. And I know that's a lot of double negatives there, but I, I just... I think I the motive is what's challenging me. I don't know enough because I don't have all the details in this case mm-hmm. to understand what kind of relationship, if any, that he and Mackenzie had. If he, I mean, he was 29, she's just shy of 18. It, did they have an inappropriate relationship? She had a boyfriend that they seemed pretty happy. Um, I know appearances, you know, whatever, but I just don't quite understand what Chris's motive would have been. I don't see my thought on that is you don't necessarily have to have a motive Mm. there. What I'm about to say, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the things like being obsessed with serial killers. Like they're fascinating. I mean, here we are on a true crime podcast. (laughs) Right. Who are we to judge? But I'm actually thinking of, um, Brian, is it Cronenberger where he was a criminal justice major and he was planning this attack on those, those college students. Mm -hmm. And I think that he just wanted to see if he could get away with it. Mm. So what if, Chris's obsession was like just all of a sudden he just saw this opportunity and he's like what if I'm the next great serial killer like you don't like you don't know what people's truest intentions are their deep intentions and maybe he just had a fantasy of doing it and a an opportunity like because with her having with Mackenzie having talked to a classmate about leaving for a few minutes I wonder I mean it could have been completely unrelated to Chris she could have just wanted to go get a coffee or something right but what if they were talking and were going to meet at his apartment or something? Maybe. But so maybe he just had this fantasy he wanted to see through. But either way, I almost the the logistics don't I mean, they work, but they don't quite make sense. So if he left the school right after Mackenzie and then what followed her in his own car and then maybe they met. But there, again, there's nothing on phone records to indicate that if we assume his apartment was at or near the academy, I guess they could have gone there and he murdered her there but then so the estimated time of death was between 3 30 and 4 30 and she left the school at three okay so they are pretty close it barely checks out because even if you assume the apartment is 
pretty close. That's a that's not very much time to have gotten somewhere, gotten inside, and then brutally murdered someone. But if she didn't die in his apartment and then he brought her there very soon after, True. that would explain the pooling of blood okay. too, right? Because oh, yes, it would. it wouldn't initially yeah. be spurting, but yep. it would still be draining, I guess. Yeah. I hate that term Me for too. that. But. but yeah. Well, and then I think, okay, so then what? Chris put Mackenzie's body in her own car, or maybe he left it there. I don't know. But then he drove to Quincy where he left her on the bank of the river. So I guess he would have had to bring a car there. I don't know. And then he drove her car to the remote town, but, and then what walked back to town, but that's 40 miles. So did someone pick him up? Like, these are the logistics that I don't, you can make work, but I have that like reasonable doubt little thing in my head. And again, you know, I went to the maps for all of this. Mm, So Pitcher Canyon, which is the, the remote town where her car was found is Southwest of Wenatchee. Quincy, where her body was found is Southeast and as we say out here, you can't get there from here. <laughs> uh, you would have to go right back through Wenatchee. Okay. So it just, it's very confusing. It's certainly possible, but it's an, it's, it has left me. And again, this is the, the short cases kill me because I know that I'm missing giant pieces of information, but it doesn't quite make more sense i mean it doesn't quite make sense you would have more information too if he went to trial but he pled guilty so you don't get that information what what was that thing that you said i don't know that we do that here in connecticut with the they canvas the juror the pre-canvas it was a pre-trial questionnaire to the the actual impaneled jury i'm not sure that they were impaneled i wonder if it was a screening i I, don't know i wonder if it was almost like a mock trial because you can't you're supposed to pick an impartial jury so if you pick a jury and then before they hear any evidence you give them a questionnaire and they're like oh he totally did it like that's not (laughs) an impartial jury what i thought they were doing was trying to gauge if the people were impartial so if they answered do you think he's guilty or not or whatever like maybe it's on a scale of how guilty they think he is huh i don't i'm totally guessing i have no idea how they do it but maybe that they were screening these people out and they like let the lawyers know about that information i really don't know oh that's interesting i'm gonna have to look it up because that's fascinating to me on a nerdy legal level that's fair yeah that's fair i certainly didn't look it up you didn't have at least two pages dedicated to the (laughs) no uh, had this been a full episode perhaps i would have (laughs) no and i i actually think that's what's frustrating about this case now i did do quite a bit of research on this and it's the information's just not out there for for most of it yeah um the 48 hours interview is really good so i do recommend it's i think secrets of the river um, oh, that's a catchy ass name. It's really good. <laughs> um, and it interviews her poor father and oh, it's, boy. it's very, it's very well done. Um, but yeah, that's, that is the case of Mackenzie Cowell. Wow. That was really, I enjoyed as not uplifting. the word. Yeah. yeah. That was mm-hmm. uplifting. That was no. much more lighthearted than the Griswold home invasion. Yeah. Well, the bar is low. So. Yeah. Well, Hey, if you're enjoying Grimm and you just can't get enough you can consider joining our Patreon, as we mentioned in the beginning. You can do that by searching Grim, a true crime podcast on the Patreon app or website. Depending on what tier you choose, you can get bonus episodes and even access to our Discord server, which if I didn't mention before, it's really fun and it's all Grim all the time. <laughs> For case photos and other awesome stuff, follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and on Facebook, just search Grim, a true crime podcast. 
As a reminder, we're streaming on just about every platform. If there are other places you prefer to listen to podcasts and we're not there, let us know. You can send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And that's also where you can send case suggestions like these, or as Marina said, carrier pigeon, smoke signal, DM, whatever your flavor. Wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave a written review. And thank you so much to those who have. I think we just broke 100 uh, reviews on Spotify. We appreciate that. We do. And uh, we just want to thank you for being here. And remember, listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.